0: You're listening to Green Dreamer, a listener-supported podcast, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. As we embark on a new year for the show, we would love to invite you to join our Patreon community, where we'll begin to share bonus episode offerings, some of my own reflections on these conversations, and more. If you've been with us for a while, you also know that we often explore ideas and perspectives that go against mainstream currents, in order to seed more imaginative thinking for what could be. So if you value our platform and curiosities and intention and want to support us to break through the noise of mainstream media, join us today on Patreon at greendreamer.com support.
1: So love is is absolutely central, but love does not necessarily need to mean love only in human terms. It it needs to have this structure of being interested in the aliveness of others, and then we see that it's actually a feature of reality.
0: Today we're speaking with Dr. Andreas Weber, a Berlin-based book and magazine writer and independent scholar whose books include Matter and Desire, an Erotic Ecology, The Biology of Wonder, Aliveness, Feeling, and the Metamorphosis of Science, and Biopoetics, Towards an Existential Ecology. Andreas has degrees in marine biology and cultural studies, having collaborated with theoretical biologist Francisco Varela in Paris, and his work focuses on re-evaluating our understanding of the living, such as proposing to understand organisms as subjects, and hence the biosphere as a meaning-creating and poetic reality. Accordingly, Andreas holds that an economy inspired by nature should not be designed as a mechanistic optimization machine, but rather as an ecosystem which transforms the mutual sharing of matter and energy into deeper meaning.
1: I think what I'm doing is somehow to explore and to understand an attitude or an experience or, or an emotion I actually always had. From my earliest um, moments, I, I remember I was conscious somehow. so I. I very much had this vivid experience of, of my own aliveness but also of the aliveness of the world around me plants and animals but but actually everything somehow so this is a it's an experience which which somehow as I didn't know otherwise it was normal but then in higher education it started to look less normal as nothing nothing was actually related to this experience and it somehow it it didn't even have an own right of existence as everything was scientific and rational and empirical and um, semi-logic. So I was somehow desperate to, to understand how the world approached me and to understand this in, in terms I could communicate about this. And I, I didn't find it. I mean, I found it later with, with some authors and thinkers and teachers but I didn't find it in the, in the sort of mainstream world I was growing into. And so I somehow needed to focus on it on my own. So that's 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 what I've been doing. I, I was just stubbornly refusing to become somebody else.
0: <laughs> well, your book, The Biology of Wonder, poses that feelings and emotions far from being superfluous to the study of organisms, are the very foundation of life," end quote. This may seem provocative to the scientific method, which prides itself on how its value of objectivity is what helps to guide people reliably and without bias to best understand how the world works. As a marine biologist and scientist yourself, what questions or limitations did you find with the underlying worldviews of biology? which led you to develop what you call poetic ecology demonstrating that subjectivity and imagination are the prerequisites of biological existence
1: Well actually what you what you describe is in in a concrete way that what I'm what I was hinting to in the other question like like how how did I come to what what I'm doing what I've been doing ever since well shortcut is I somehow it took some time before reciting for um, for a subject matter to study but then I, I settled with biology because it was i was interested in life but as i had already imagined and then it also happened like this it's it was the opposite of life it was understanding something very dead and very um soulless and experience less and it, I mean, with the with the whole force of a very well developed science with foundations in the natural sciences proper, it was somewhat overwhelming to keep this flame alive. That was the experience. That aliveness is it's about something more than just how biological machines work. But this is this is what you learn in this form of if you do biology, if you do natural sciences, which is um, you learn a lot, and it's very helpful. But if you want to understand what is the experience of being alive, then it doesn't really help you. So I had to find mentors who were on the same quest. And I was lucky to find two thinkers, one was already dead. So I found only found his books, it was the Jewish-German philosopher, uh, Hans Jonas, who had emigrated to the US and worked as a professor of philosophy in in New York State. And then there was Francisco Varela, who became my teacher. He he was a biologist and a cognitive researcher and also a philosopher and also a Buddhist. And the work of those two, and then particularly the work of Francisco Varela, with whom I, I worked together, was... Actually, an attempt to understand scientifically what is going on in living cells that we can describe them as subjects, as you could even say persons, as selves, as selves with an interest, with experience, um, who, who understand the world according to meaning, to value, to feelings. So, everything we know from ourselves was they, th- th- those people try to understand this from biology, from, from what is happening in a cell. So this, this was a project I, I really embraced and I embarked on and I contributed to. And because then I had the link between this experience and between the, let's say, the, the experience that also other beings have this experience, share this experience, communicate this experience with me, to me, to each other and a scientific approach to, to explain this. And um, yeah, well, I'd say in the 20 years I, or maybe 25 already, I, I was a student. Um, there has happened a lot in biology and in philosophy of biology, which is in favor of this view that living beings are actually subjects, sentient beings with an inner experience like we have.
0: Mm, I really appreciate this yes and approach that you seem to have taken, which is, of course, that the scientific lens teaches us a lot about the world. And at the same time, there are other lenses and mm-hmm. curiosities yeah. that that lens might not allow us to actually see.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's important. Yeah, thanks for mirroring back that to me. It's it's important that I I don't say that what, what science finds is wrong. It's only one Perspective. So, and 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 science tends to inflate this perspective onto everything, telling that okay, this is everything that there is. So, I I was really lucky to have a great biological education, and I enjoyed this, particularly the knowledge of other beings, other species, the hands-on stuff. And I then specialized in marine biology, so I also enjoyed to be with all these fantastic, beautiful marine animals and plants, and the sea and the ocean and all this or the aliveness going on there, so I, I I'd never say this is wrong. I only say that there's the focus is on only one aspect, and it's never on the aspect. So so what has this actually to do with me as an as a sentient being, as somebody who makes sense, who who sees beauty, who who experiences meaning, who who experiences other beings as as poetic, as as full of full of symbolic attraction, all these things. This is this is always bracketed out in sciences, natural sciences, and uh, but this is important. It's crucial.
0: I want to talk more about the implications of these worldviews. So in Enlivenment, you write, the central feature of our crisis-ridden civilization is that mainstream thinking takes reality for something it is not. We think it is dead, that we can treat it by means of mechanical rationality, but it is alive, end quote. This reminds Mm. me of my conversation with Dr. Bayo Akomolafe, which inspired me to see our quote-unquote systemic crisis in a different way, which is that perhaps Mm. the ways that we attempt to systematize an agential and living world, which refuses to be fixed or framed, is part of the crisis itself. Mm. So to these points, I think about the idea that We cannot address crises using the same mindset that created them. And I question the mechanical rationality that still underpins our most hyped solutions to things like climate change, which disproportionately fixate on chemistry or at best biochemistry, but fail to see the possibility of those measurements as just being symbolic and symptomatic of the deeper hurt and wounds and pains and relational breakdowns many people and more than human communities have felt. And experienced. Mm. I'm just curious what mm. bubbles up for you with these thoughts and questions.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's lovely you also talk to Bayo, who's a who is a friend, and I'm a, a true admirer of his brilliance and of his work. And I know that he he really suggests not to go for solutions, <laughs> but to to sit with life as it happens to you, as it happens to you in connection to others. And I think that's actually. That is what is needed. And let me, let me tell about my way to get there. I would say the, that which we can call a crisis, well, uh, we're heading into the next crisis, which is the European summer, which will be hotter than the last one. And that, that one was already deadly hot. So we're clearly in a crisis. Um, at, at least one crisis is the crisis of, of climate heating, climate disruption. But I would say actually that the, the true crisis is a crisis of of our mindset, of the the global Western mindset. That's, that is actually in crisis. And, and these the disasters we live through are the consequences of the crisis of this of this mindset. And the mindset is the idea that we, and we, we need to say in this concept, it is it is Western rational humans are stand above or aside a world of mute things i'd say that's that's the the quickest summary of the idea of well it's it's more than the idea of enlightenment it's it's the, it's the rational idea um, of how the world is functioning which has been developed in the west is that that some humans with their rational capacity stand in distance to Everything else which is only objects governed by physical laws. So you could say this this mindset is actually it's an embodiment of narcissism. You see the narcissist only sees himself as true subject and everything everyone else is just matter for, for his or her plans. So this is this is the classical narcissistic perspective. And it is as all narcissistic perspectives are completely wrong. As we are together, truly we are together with a multitude of other desiring, striving, living subjects. So if you treat if you treat a community of beings as dead matter, you will destroy it, and you will do um, incredible damage and inflict incredible hurt, and you'll ultimately also destroy yourself. I would say this, this is what has been happening. And this is what is still happening because the mainstream idea has not changed. The mainstream idea, which you find in, in politics, in technology, in, in administration, uh, even in, in big parts of academia, in the education system, is, is still the idea that the so-called human mind is standing apart from a dead world build of things. And it's ruinous, as we know.
0: Right. And part of this crisis is also how we've, or a lot of people in the dominant culture, have limited our senses of selves. And as an alternative, your work really invites us to expand how we understand the self. And you talk about this self through other in a way that goes beyond simply recognizing that there are different levels of selfhood. Mm. For example, from maybe the microscopic and cellular level to our contained or not so contained bodies to the Mm. communities that our bodies make up and then also to our planetary bodies and beyond. I would love for you to expand on what you mean when you say that there's only one immutable truth. No being is purely individual. Nothing comprises only itself. Each life form is less like an individual warrior and more like a tiny universe. Yeah, I would love for you to elaborate on this.
1: Mm, yeah. So the, the idea of, of self or of individual for me is rather important as it is on one hand, something which is real in the sense of our experience of it and not only ours, but also the experience of all these innumerable, innumerable other biological selves, which are not humans. And on the other hand, self is only a transitory and fleeting state, and it's only possible because there is a continuous transformation of selves into others, which is actually a way to describe the ecosphere. It is giving rise to selves, which then transform into other selves. And we are part of this. So we have, on the one hand, we have the reality of selves to a much higher degree in the, in the biosphere, in in the world, in in reality, than we thought before, because before we thought only it's only the human rational self, if at all, which is real, and the rest is something we we don't know, and it's somehow material and neutral and it has no interest. So it is the world is full of these selves. On the other hand, all these selves can only exist because they exist together and they exist through one another. So, you see, there's this self is broken, but it's broken in a way that it needs the other. And there's a huge process of co creation and co construction, which is also visible in the ecosphere. You can see the ecosystem is, is a sort of distributed self made of a multitude of individual subjects continuously building up themselves and then melting into one another again. So, self is. Real in the sense of the locus of experience, of emotions, of meaning, of the the understanding of being alive. And on the other hand, it is not something absolute, autonomous or sovereign, which could be put into a polar opposition to the rest of the world, because it is only a, a sort of expression of the ongoing breathing relationships within this world. It's it's very important to see these two aspects. And it's important to see that one that, that these two aspects need one another, and you, you can't pull out one of them, or you can't just bank on one of them, as our culture before normally did. So so one idea was okay that we, the individual is, is some somehow absolute and it's only human and it stands against the world, or another idea was or actually. Self is an illusion, it's, it's just a huge process, it's just completely distributed. Um, no, it, is, it has these both, both of these aspects, which makes the experience of life only possible and which makes the experience of life also interesting, which we know. So we know that we cannot exist in, in, in solitude, in isolation. We know that individuals are actually individuals, which is a lovely uh, language game by, by the anthropologist Marilyn Stratham. So, we're we are always dividing and divided and sharing and shared. So, we're individuals. We cannot be just an individual. But on the other hand, this, this individualness is also an experience in its own right. So, in, in the moment I'm having this, I, I am a pole of this world who experiences the world from a unique perspective, from a unique point of concern and of meaning, from something very irreducible and very profound and very um, non-material. And th- that's, that's the other side of the picture. So we need to accommodate these both things, which are somehow in a paradoxical relationship, and that makes it very difficult for our, our traditional understanding to, to somehow integrate these things. On the other hand, if we look into other cultures, then they have no problem to do this. So I'm, I'm particularly concerned with traditional cultures at the moment, with what we call animistic cultures, and they have etiquettes to address this twofoldness. or if we look into Eastern cosmologies, Indian or, or Asian spirituality, Buddhist hin- Hinduistic spirituality, we we found this twofoldedness um, really at the ground of the experience of reality. So so it's there. It's only not a Western thing, and that's a big problem.
0: Yeah, I'm very drawn to this paradoxical way of thinking and this all of the above approach. And this is all just super fascinating to think about. I was just reading about how on average, the cells in our bodies are renewed and replaced every seven to 10 years with Mm. a type of white blood cell, maybe Mm -hmm. only lasting two days, the cells in the middle of our eyes lasting a lifetime, and even suggestions that our brain cells live beyond our lifetimes. So with this and with the consideration of the exchanges that we're constantly making with other beings and how we're constantly taking in what we consume to become a part of ourselves while constantly giving parts of ourselves away to become parts of other beings, the configurations and the community makeup of our bodies are constantly changing and also at the same time tethered to our more than human selves, which should make us question the rigid boundaries of our selfhood. Though, like you just said, you really emphasize that we can't just simplify in the other direction, as in The message isn't that with all of these spillovers, ultimately there is no individual self, which Mm. might be my human self, which is meaningful to me. So, with this said, what do you see as the significance of recognizing ourselves as, I think, more than interdependent and entangled? Both of which could still suggest that we are separate beings, which can't do without our broader webs of life, but Mm. perhaps seeing ourselves. As something like intradependent, or I don't know that there's another word that is more, mm. yeah, resonant for you.
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and it's really it's really touching on something I'm I'm thinking about right now, as I'm um, I, I need to write a paper actually about art and and ritual and what is that, what is transmitted in art. So I, I really have to think about this invisible reality we are part of, and we can somehow even pass on to others by by means humans have so i'm i'm thinking about this irreducible experience of being a center of concern which nonetheless is only possible because of this hybridity and because of this of the fact that we we, we can never delineate a clear sense um, a clear clear border of the self and let me just say couple of things on this as I'm acknowledging the huge research in um, critical humanities on this it's really taken off so we were in the post human studies age and in the in the post materialistic and per, what, what is it there are some monikers the, the the non-human turn has taken place but still what I still see there is that there are keywords like Assemblage coming from Deleuze and multitude coming from Singh. So, this distributedness, it's very, it's very on the foreground. The hybridity, but then still, the, the, this particular experience of being a subject in this hybridity is not yet addressed because this particular experience is something which does not map on the way. Western science has done. You can go your way from understanding the subject as made up only by language games, which was happening in the 70s and 80s. And now you can understand it somehow as, as somehow lost in rhizomatic assemblages. But these are still somehow descriptions of something exterior, and and what is what you also need at the same time you need the i can't really say description you need the dimension of the interior dimension the interior experience of what it means to be all this you need to feed this in and this is what what western science never wanted to do because because then you have an irreducible moment of experience of subjectivity of your personal story and you have something which you cannot measure, which you cannot you cannot even discuss. You cannot even have a logical argument about because it is your personal experience as a living being. So science doesn't really want to have this so far. But to my eyes, this is just what makes the ground zero of living experience. It's just this. So, so as I said before, in, in its par- paradoxical mixture of being com- totally distributed, and rhizomatic and, and, and assembled and, and reassembling and, and self composting around this strange center of living experience, which is the experience of me here in this. And we cannot get rid of both of, of any of these sides and we somehow need to put these together. And so there's a lot of work ahead of us. But as I already said, it's not. It would not be the first time to put this together because cultures did put this together and they lived in this paradoxical way of having several faces and being able to have several faces. And it worked very well. And they were much more, much less violent than our civilization is. So I think this, the, the call to accept this irreducible felt and experienced dimension is also a call to stop. This terrible um, expansion of governing over every material you can get hold of.
0: Right. Well, with all this said, I would really begin to question the whole idea of some objective reality and how meaningful that is because. What feels more real and what feels like should matter more is all of the subjective experiences of the agential beings and intra-beings and communities and ecosystems and biospheres with their own, as you say, desires and expressions and states of well-being shown in different ways. Because of our collective experience and feeling of aliveness and enrichment and loving and being loved aren't more important than the so-called objective measurements indicating the so-called advancement and welfare of society, then I'm afraid we really become disoriented in what we use to guide our decisions of making and remaking the world. Mm. And so you write, if we put the lived truth that is shared with others at center stage, it provides a strong ethical mandate to intervene in our global system. Enlivenment not only suggests strategies of change, but shifts the perspectives under which any change is experienced. It offers mm. an invitation to participate in life, end quote. Mm. Perhaps the thought of using philosophical shifts to inform Tangible strategies of change can feel abstract, and perhaps those used to using objective, quantifiable data to determine truths may be uncomfortable with the idea of using qualitative and subjective experiences to guide our paths forward. But I would love for you to share more about what all of this means to you. Mm.
1: The problem with the term objectivity, objective measurements, or the, just the adjective "objective" in in our culture is that it's actually not about being objective, but it's it's about a certain view on the world. It's it's like when somebody tells you, "Hey, come on, be rational," and then then he or she doesn't mean that you should be rational. You the, she he or she means adhere to the rules I have made. So it's the same with objective. It actually means please sign the understanding that the world is built from things and that external laws govern the relation between these things. This is, this is meant when they say objective. But um, it's only this. It's only the, the view of the world as being made of objects. Well, this, this is, this is the, the link to this word objective. But if you take it in, the, in its meaning of being relevant and binding for all, then I wouldn't say that we cannot have objectivity or we cannot have something which is relevant and valid for all participants in this cosmos, but we only need to untangle it from the link to things and their mechanical, causal, or algorithmic relationships among them. And we need to see that validity has to do with the degree to what an act is contributing to shared aliveness, so there is there is a horizon of objectivity, but it is, it is not the thingness with the according mechanical laws, but it is the let's say the fecundity of something introduced in the nexus of life. Is is this helpful or is this not helpful? Is this a contribution or is this disruptive, uh, locally disruptive, or globally disruptive? So I'd say that that actually, as being alive, we have a, a sensorium to understand this. So we have a we have actually our inbuilt measuring devices for objectivity, only that this objectivity is not about objects, it's about it's about uh, felt sharing of living relations. And I've called this, in the book you quoted, Enlivenment, I call this poetic objectivity because it's, it's fluid, it's meaningful, and it's about um, the understanding of connections and the consequences of connections, the metaphors of connections. So we have poetic objectivity, which is accessible, and that's the other term I use in that book, which is accessible through something which I call empirical subjectivity because, because this whole reality, this whole living reality is peopled by subjects. And these subjects are, are an empirical reality because they're real. They, they exist, they, they strive for their life, they communicate, they bond, they quarrel, they transform themselves into others. So we, we all are empirical subjects, and because we're all empirical subjects, this the horizon of a common world is the world of shared lives. And then we can very well say something about what makes sense in this world or what doesn't. So, so we are absolutely not left without any scale for making measurements, for orienting ourselves. So... Only that these scales are never objective in the old objective sense, which means they you can use them in any situation, regardless of who you apply them to. Um, they're written in the books. They're codified in law. That does not work in, in a living world. So they're always situated. You always have to, to look at um, with whom are you using them, from, from which side. So it's, they're always contextual. They're always living. They're always distributed. You always you cannot be alone in judging. You have to be be in a committee. You see, so it's in a way it is um, the 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 living uh, the living system talks to itself about itself. But there is a direction of fecundity of of functioning of this living system of of growing of flourishing, which which is existing, which does exist, and which gives a set of precepts about how to behave, and that is very important for me. And this is this is where my thinking really deviates from what is the, the non-human turn in humanities at the moment because um, there it is very much about the total freedom of, of in, inventing oneself in, in any way possible, which to me tastes, still tastes very much of um, Western isolation from the remainder of the living cosmos in which we actually exist.
0: Hmm. So objectivity could really be understood as biased towards one particular worldview. Not that it's wrong, again, I think we're more so entertaining this all of the above perspective, but maybe the fact that this view has been made to be quote-unquote objective reveals more about the cultural power dynamics at play. And mm. it reminds me yeah. of in journalism when independent media critics look at the illusion of journalistic neutrality as one actually as a tool of enforcing particular views and power dynamics. So I see something similar there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's very similar, and I, I know this very well as I've long worked as a feature writer, and I, I know this dynamic. Um, I, I I felt this um, in my own body. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking. about, Yes, yeah. yeah, and I mean, you see, this is you're referring you're referring to to using something which which somehow has the flavor of being a neutral description of the right way to do it, and to use it in your own favor, and to just to apply it in a way that that your personal preference is somehow safeguarded and then you 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 say well that's not objective you need to be objective but actually you mean you need to do it in my way yeah that's that's how our culture enforces this mono view of objectivity um, as the idea of a world just made of things true yeah yeah, I, i agree i agree
0: yeah Well, given this perspective shift of understanding our more than human bodies, I want to talk about what it means to love in this world, perhaps Mm -hmm. in ways that nurtures our collective experience of aliveness Mm. and on this front you talk about the arrows that we must learn to carry forth if we want to love and you say life is touch in a much deeper sense than just touching skin to skin colliding against foreign masses Mm. it is touch as penetration of one by another the existence of each one of us plants animal cells i as a human being depends solely on the mutual relatedness manifested in this exchange End quote. And this beautifully mm. summarizes a lot of the dynamics we were talking about earlier. And on this note, I would just be curious to hear you elaborate on the relationship between love and surrender and even death in its various forms mm. and how they add to growing our aliveness.
1: Yeah, lovely. You've been using the word um, love before in the question before, and I, I've put it down here on my on my paper and with a big square around it because I also wanted to talk about that. So it's, it's 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 very important to know what we what we're talking about when we're talking about this. So let me let me try to to approach this from the side of arrows, which is it's has also uh, takes much space in my thinking and. Uh, I don't know if you mentioned it, or one of my books is um, called, in in subtitle, it's called An Erotic Ecology. And Eros actually is, so what is Eros? It's a good question. You could say Eros has to do with the tension between, between myself and that what I am not yet, and which comes only from you, or which comes only from the other. So Eros has to do with the relationship of of being or becoming myself through that which is not me so there is a an an aspect of lack in eros an aspect of desire i yearn to become more than i am now to be more alive to 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 grow to to, to explore sides which are in the dark right now and i can do this only if i go out of myself if i unbecome myself if i enter into someone else if i somehow other myself and get the gift of of watching myself from a different perspective from someone else which which is not necessarily human i I always also can that get that gift from the the maple tree which is outside of my window in the dark right now and which by the way i heartily invite into our talk so, so there's, there's also an erotic relationship between me and this maple tree because, because he has something about me which I don't have, which I don't know. And, and human errors is very much about this, this, the, the erotic tension is very much about losing myself in someone else and finding someone else in me. And this goes even to the level of bodily interactions as we see. So so it means somehow it has to do with with breaking down the boundaries of self in order to enlarge these boundaries of self. And it can go horribly wrong. If there is an a, a flavor of disrespect of somebody else's aliveness, then this goes wrong. And this becomes toxic as, as one says nowadays. It it becomes um, domination and colonization but if this um, goes well it become it is it is on the one hand it is growth and enlargement and, and on the other hand it means to be able to touch upon that inside of all of us which is always foreign to our personal selves and which is on the same time, the source from which these personal selves are, are refilled, which is aliveness itself. So it is also, eros is also the attempt to, to tap into the aliveness as a pure substance, which gives life. And the, the bliss, which is related to eros is the bliss that you, that you feel when you meet aliveness in, in its core And and as you know, we we are all addicted to this, but we are, unfortunately, in in Western civilization, people can find this only in human love, in human eros. But it's actually only a, a tiny region where you can find this. And again, older cultures knew to cultivate this encounter of the larger ecological self in bliss through cultural practices, through ritualistic practices. And so it became much bigger and it became became much more um, ubiquitous. It was actually, you could find this much easier. And, and I actually find this in the encounter with other non-human persons a lot. And it's a huge resource, but I'm, I still wanted to talk about the term love, which again has to do with this, This paradoxical relation to your own unfolding, which goes always through the other. You always need to to deviate through the other in order to get to yourself. And, And loving is to love is a process in which you consciously allow the other to deviate through you in order to fill up their aliveness. So it's it's a way of giving others their aliveness, allowing others to, to get their aliveness th- through you, which you see is very close to, to my idea of arrows and it's related, as we know, at least in, in human adult love. It's, it's very much related to arrows. But it, there's also an ecological dimension to love, which is realizing yourself in a way that, makes the self-realization of the others flourish. That's the love on an ecological uh, level. And that's what happening in ecosystem. that's that's what just what ecosystems do in ecosystems. all beings self-realize in exactly the way that maximizes the self-realization, realization of all the other beings in an ecosystem. so if if you walk into a flowering meadow or into a um, a dense forest, or to a seashore, you see the embodiment of love in front of your eyes, through your pores of the of your skin, with all your senses. You can you can taste it on your lips. You can hear it in your in your ears. You, you feel it as a as a shiver on on your on the tiny hairs on your skin. It's participating in this mutual gift of aliveness, and um, and, and we feel this. And this is why people. Uh, and now um, I put this in air quotes because it's the way the the West um, speaks about it. This is why people very often love nature. It's because they partake in this exchange of love and they understand, we understand, that this is actually what is happening at the inner core of, of what is going on in this reality. Only that our daily culture has completely estranged us to this. But again, not all culture, cultures are like this. Many cultures have this very much present and they, they hold it precious and and they give thanks and they have rituals to reinforce this. So love is, is absolutely central, but love does not necessarily m- need to mean love only in human terms. It, it needs to have this structure of being interested in the aliveness of Others. And then we see that it's actually a feature of reality.
0: Right. And so death is very much a part of this love and Ah, giving. And death uh, was. Yeah. Yes. I want to mention that a lot of times, well, first of all, of course, there is brutal death and death entailing a lot of suffering. And that doesn't really embody love in all the senses, in all the ways that it could. But a lot of times people conceptualize death as sort of the opposite of life. And Farmer Rishi in our past conversation inspired me to see life as a constant and death more so as on the flip side of birth and feeding into the latter. Though either way, yeah, yeah, that dualism still focuses on the death of that particular, not so substantive sense of self that we blurred the boundaries of earlier, which may be more material, but not really either given the lifelong continuous reconfigurations including deaths of the community makeup of our many universes since we were born So I wonder if your explorations of self as other have changed how you view or define death and what that even refers to. And then of course, different cultures and religions have different stories or sometimes taboos around death. And I wanna honor all of that. But with you, I'm particularly interested in hearing more about your desire to make yourself more edible in death. Because one could Mm -hmm. argue that we Mm -hmm. are all edible, whether we want to be or not. Mm -hmm. You know, We're edible while we're alive and we will continue to be in death. So then taking this train of curiosity, what does it mean to make ourselves more edible or maybe die well in the most nourishing and delicious way possible when our time comes?
1: Well, I think you could say the same you just said without this qualifier when our time to comes. You could mm. say it just for every moment, yeah. make, make yourself edible in the most delicious way. This is, this is the recipe for a good life. I'll elaborate on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Before I want to say that I completely subscribe to, really, I'm really, I really develop the same view of of seeing life as overarching, and life is not the op- opposite of death. Death is part of life, and and as you said, death is the other side of birth. So both are in this. the both are part of parts of this overarching thing, which is life or lifeness. And with every death, there comes a birth, and with every birth, there comes a death. So, we, we, th- these are really two sides of the same thing, which which is very important to see, because then death makes you feel a lot different. If you see, you cannot lose life, and on the other side of death, there's, there's a birth, and then everything looks very different. So, I agree, and you're totally right. Again, we are edible, and we will be eaten. I mean, we are edible. Let's say in in as long as we're not full of forever chemicals. <laughs> Maybe there's even there's even then then it becomes more difficult. So so we cannot really avoid this, but we actually cannot avoid a living cosmos. And still, uh, Western civilization tries to avoid a living cosmos. And it's, it's people who are part of Western civilization also have learned to make them the the, the least edible possible, and th- that makes. F- makes them feel very very desperate and depressed and and burnt out so ad- being edible is is one way to put what i described before from different angles that being a living subject in this reality means that we can only exist if we continuously share that which which is ours which that which we are made from with others and um, so we allow others to eat us, and we also we are also eating others. And one very simple example is breath. So in breath, we are actually making ourselves edible in every moment without being able to consent. So normally you don't consent to your breath; you just breathe. So breath means that your your body decomposes itself and loses CO two. So that's that's the C in the carbon in your breath is actually your flesh made mobile and going into the atmosphere which should be called the commons of breath and then a tree breathes your body in and builds their leaves from this so you see you're already edible and the other way around you take the apple from the tree and eat it and you build your flesh from the apple's flesh from the tree's flesh so also the tree is edible so this is what is what is happening on on the level of ecosystem you see this you could also say in a way being edible is a way to organize love because through your edibility you grant life to the tree and through his or their edibility the tree grants life to you so this is it's a way how love is organized in the circles of gift of the biosphere which we First, when we come to the world, we don't really have a say in this. We actually never have a say in this, but we can, we, we can behave very badly and we can behave very disrespectful towards this beautiful organization of the world as the gift of mutual edibility. We can behave like, like very r- r- reticent, stupid, uneducated, very young kids who refuse to understand the way one needs to behave in in a society in which the gift is what makes continuity possible. And that's how Western civilization behaves. So we cannot change this, but we can somehow damage the process in this. And as you know, Western civilization has this cult of not thinking and not talking about death avoiding the idea of death finding that death is is it's a scandal and better not talk about it and better actually not think about it because when it happens then everything will be over and better you have done your cruise right before because then you you could consume as much as possible so this is this is a little bit the caricature of the of the western way to think about death so death, the Western way of thinking about death is without taking into account that you're always a gift to others. And you already, before you die, you're a gift to others. And when you like die in your embodied individuality, you're still a gift to others. And it is also a birth into another form of individuality or another form of being part of this feeling living subject, which is this cosmos, which which is this world. So, death is required, but death is not what the West thinks it is. And if the West thought differently about death, it would be easier to talk about the fact that our giving away ourselves is required in order to keep the cosmos fecund, flourishing, a living place, a loving place.
0: Mm. So many layers to this. I mean, with everything we talked about, I would even question whether death is on the opposite side of birth, because sometimes transformations and reconfigurations involve both at the same mm. time, not necessarily either or. So Absolutely sometimes death yes. just feeds into more growth. Yeah. And then sometimes new reconfigurations of life can just involve different beings coming together to form a new community. So yeah, mm. it- Lots, lots to think about here. Well, there are just so many lessons mm. to be learned from observing more than human communities and how they play out. Though I think sometimes there's often a romanticization of that too. So I just, I really resonated with seeing the anarchic and kind of ruleless or constantly rules remaking nature of what may otherwise be painted as, you know, beings living in harmony with one another. And yeah. to this point, yeah. you write, In its incessantly renewing plenitude of life, the biosphere is no more, quote, truthfully symbiotic than it is, quote, fundamentally competitive. The world of biology is more like a wild playing field with anarchic elements, where the rules of creative togetherness are constantly being renegotiated where gang wars break out between little groups of co-conspirators and schemers, but also where one finds acts of magnanimous sharing, heroic dedication and dreamlike bliss, end quote. Mm -hmm. This is all so nuanced, so all of the above and so fugitive in its meaning, but so real that I actually kind of worry that they may start to feel a little meaningless to those trying to sense make or maybe reform rules and systems or enforce new fixed structures Mm -hmm. in order to realize more alive futures. But I want to leave this closing to you and ask you what you think we can learn from this realization of how our world and its configuration in every sense of the word is complex in its layers and dynamics and also constantly being remade. What can we ultimately take away from this?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think what we can take away from this is the much more confidence in our personal experience of being part of the world. Because you see, if the objective rules are so fluid and they are so dependent on the local situation and they are so context dependent and they're dependent on who is actually playing with you, and this this might shift with time, and then you are also changing through time. Then it is very important to to have some access to these, to the relationships, which is not based just on abstract knowledge of rules or um, or a codified law or empirical observation. So so we we need to give much more attention to our could you call it our, our experience of being on the inside of this and knowing from the inside about what is actually magnifying, enhancing the the aliveness of the whole. Or you could say we need to grow our intuitive approach to to this world, to this reality, which is the most neglected human capacity probably in this globalized Western civilization. So we have an, an inside knowledge of what is serving life, and very often, and I mean this very, very hands-on. So it's it's it has an abstract dimension to it, but it's something which we can all discover in our personal lives to to tap into this wisdom of being always present on the inside of that which is happening which is not a knowledge. It's not something you can write down or you can um, construct an argument from. It's something which you somehow know. It's also not a feeling. It's something different. It's something more profound. It's something more global. It's something also more secure. And we have this because we are part of this whole huge uh, relational process. We're profoundly part of this. So we're inside of this, and we also have an inside knowledge. And people have used this to a much higher degree and, and everybody can use this to a much higher degree. And the first step of using is this is to allow yourself to notice when you feel truly alive. So just to get connect to this possibility to tap into this aliveness. Some, sometimes we really need to look for this. We really, really need to find this because it's so buried under so many layers of thinking what one needs to be or what one needs to represent and and if this is found then then slowly start to to be guided by this to be guided what by 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 the feeling of what feels right for life it's not even the feeling of what feels right for me it's it's also very complicated for westerners to understand this this difference but it comes if you if you allow yourself to go there in a way to to become a little bit like a tree or or like a um, Northern goshawk or a toad in in early spring, tap into this this power of knowing what what is needed in order to be edible, which which we have, and um, I'm toying with this, or I'm researching this, however you put it, I'm I'm, I'm exploring this in personally in, in my own life, and it is incredibly profound and incredibly enriching, and there's a whole. There's a whole continent which we somehow have lost out of sight and I think which we share with uh, all all the other beings who are much more capable of doing so. And uh, But we also can. And then we, we can come back into the center of this and find our connection to the center of this beautiful, this precious mandala we are part of.
0: What has been one of the most impactful books that you've read or publications you follow?
1: Well, right now, in the last years, I'd say it's um, Robin Wall Kimmerer's uh, Braiding Sweetgrass, where she, in a, in a very beautiful, poetic, uh, gentle, and absolutely groundbreaking way, brings back the ways of her native Potawatomi culture into our understanding of how to relate to other than human beings, and um, that's—it's a book I'm, I'm teaching my students, and I'm—I'm I'm personally relating to, and it's—it's it's just such a gift.
0: Mm. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice that you engage with to stay grounded?
1: Well, two things. I um, one thing is to um, stay with this dimension this invisible dimension, this non-thinking dimension of being close to the center of life in silence. You could call a meditation. Mm. And then very rich, very related to that, actually not different. It's a, it's a sort of um, guided meditation with other than human beings, just sitting with them. And that's what also what I really do on a daily basis just being with them in silence and being together in this dimension of connectedness in life and i'm i'm even i'm even doing it right now because i'm i know that i am in the presence of the all these trees Mm. in front of my window so it doesn't go away it's always there
0: yeah and finally what is one of your greatest sources of inspiration at the moment
1: well, that's um, again the way the, the traditional cultures, the animistic cultures, are are so beautifully constructing and um, molding the personhood of all other beings in in a society of togetherness, and it's so I- incredibly um, inspiring, and it's so it's so healing to see um, what humans can do if they. Really, they really allow themselves to be on the same level, or let's say even to be in awe of the power of other than human species. And it's, it's um, I'm very grateful for this, the richness of cultural practices, of ways we can be if we allow ourselves to be. Mm-hmm. That's, that's something I'm very close to.
0: Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close here, but to learn more and stay updated on Andreas' work and writing, you can head to biologyofwonder.org, and we'll have more references from this episode linked in our show notes as well at greendreamer.com. Andreas, this was incredible. Thank you for all of these seeds of other ways of thinking and feeling and experiencing the world that you've shared with us here. For now, though, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers?
1: I know that life itself is unable to die. It is undestructible and can only always, again, give, give beings, give form, let flowers bloom from that which is invisible, that which seem to be nothing but which is the ground of existence and we can really trust that this will never change and this will always make life come back so we can participate in in letting life grow because there's we don't need to have any fear that in staying with life anything bad can happen to us that's that's what i would say it's 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 really beautiful to know that Thick. The ground of the world is life.
0: This episode was brought to you by listeners like you. To receive my personal reflections on these conversations, get access to our bonus live podcasts and gatherings, and support our show to continue, join us today on Patreon at greendreamer.com support. As a small independent show, we also really appreciate your five-star reviews and whenever you get the chance to share your favorite episodes. Our song featured today is Over It by Ruby Madir. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you soon in the next episode.